Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 20. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You may be seated. As you're being seated, let's, let's pray. Yeah, Jesus, we come this morning wanting to see you, and more than that, needing to see you. Needing to receive all that you have for your people. Lord, we confess we are a needy people, a weak people. And so would you, by your Holy Spirit, as we go deep into your word, would you speak to us and minister to our souls? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Before we get into the text this morning, I want to just double down on what Heath said in the announcements. Uh, the AGM on February, not August 26, February 26. Uh, if you come on August 26, no one will be here because we all go away in the summer. Uh, and so don't come on August 26. February 26, this month, uh, come to the AGM. Even if you're not a member, come. It's really important that you're there, hear about what's happening across this network of neighborhood churches. We'd love to see you there. And then also, he uh, mentioned a baptism class. If you're comfortable uh, taking communion, taking the Lord's Supper, uh, then you should be baptized. Uh, like communion, uh, baptism is one of the sacraments, one of the, the outward signs of an inward reality that Jesus gives to his people. And so if you're comfortable taking the Lord's Supper, uh, then baptism is a step of obedience that Jesus commands for all of his followers. So I'd love to talk to you more about that. Love to have you at the class. Uh, th that class is on our website to register for today, okay? Well, in uh, a sermon, a sermon uh, that uh, Pastor John Piper preached in 2006, he tells a story of a monk who was asked uh, how he would feel if it turned out that Christianity wasn't true. The whole thing was made up. How would he feel about that? Would he in particular feel as if he wasted his life? And the monk uh, responds like this. Holiness, silence, sacrifice are beautiful in themselves, he replied. Even without promise of reward, I still would have used my life well. The sentiment sounds nice, doesn't it? It sounds noble, doesn't it? Even enlightened, right? The problem this morning is that it's complete garbage. It's complete hogwash. The monk, I think, accurately represents many in our city, maybe even in this room, who would hold to the position uh, that we would call altruism, 
Doing good for good sake. Uh, one author says this, altruism is a concern for the welfare of others as an end in itself. It's doing good because it's the right thing to do. You should just do it. I think altruism is the default setting of many in our city. Some of you would know Stanley Park, the place we love to go and ride our bikes and yell at tourists, was dedicated to altruism. It's, 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 a, it's a monument to altruism in our city. And Paul, I hope you saw, it should be said, is not an altruist. Paul rejects that logic. His logic in what we just read is completely and entirely different. See, up until this point in chapter 15, Paul has laid out a narrative account of what has happened. He's making a tight rhetorical argument. He says, Jesus has died for our sins. He says, Jesus was buried. He, he was dead, dead for our sins. Jesus was raised in accordance with the scriptures. And Jesus appeared to many, many, many people over the series, over the course of a few weeks. Jesus did do these things. And then last week, Paul took these historical facts of God's grace and he applied them to his life. He says, God's grace has touched my life. It's not an abstract thing for me. It's changed how I live. It's changed how I work. It's changed all that I do. God's grace has changed me. But this morning... Paul gets to the heart of the problem. The, the narrative account gives way and the problem rises to the surface. He says in verse 12, this is what's happening in Corinth. Now, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, which indeed is what he and the apostles did, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? There are some in Corinth, it, in the church, in the church, who did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And what we read, what follows, is that to take, Paul will say, the bodily resurrection of Christ out of the Jenga tower that is the gospel is to see the whole thing come crumbling down, is to be left with no gospel, no hope at all. This morning, I want to trace Paul's logic through two points. Two points all the while see that we're being invited to live our lives according to the logic of the gospel. This logic of the gospel. First point, if Christ is dead. Second point, if Christ is alive. First point, if Christ is dead. Christ City, are you with me? Yeah? This is important. Paul says, if Christ is dead. Verse 13 is inviting us into a thought experiment. He's saying, okay, here's the rabbit hole. Let's go all the way down to the very, very bottom of it. And believe me, by the time we're done, we're going to be at the, the bottom of it. He says this, but if there is no resurrection of the dead. My kids and I recently watched a YouTube video. Don't worry, they have limited screen time. I know you're all concerned. We watched a YouTube video uh, where a robot in 24 hours laid uh, 100,000 dominoes. Maybe you've seen the one. Laid 100,000 dominoes. And at the end of it, it formed like this beautiful picture. And the grand finale, of course, was that one single domino knocking over the, the 99,999 other dominoes. It was beautiful to watch. It was dominoes on, on, a, on a massive scale. But I actually think what Paul's doing in our text this morning is dominoes at an even higher level. It's cosmic dominoes. That's what Paul's doing. Listen, he says at the beginning of this verse, verse 13, that if there is no resurrection of the dead, and it's going to follow from this, 
We need to pause then and be clear. What is, what is he talking about? What, is, what does he mean? What's he refuting? The rest of chapter 15 is going to make this really clear that for Paul, resurrection of the dead is shorthand for a bodily resurrection at the end of the age when Christ returns. Nothing less than that. That's what Paul is thinking about. That's what he has in his head. It's likely that what Corinth was denying was not an afterlife, but an embodied afterlife. A real, physical, tangible, you know, grab with your hands, eat food kind of afterlife. Heaven is not, I want to be so clear, heaven is not a, a, a Philadelphia cream cheese commercial. You, you know the ones, right? Right? They're wearing wings. They're sitting on clouds, playing harps. It's just eternal worship service. And you're like, I don't know if I want to go to heaven. Poof, that looks boring. Looks ethereal. No, we believe, the church has always believed that Jesus is coming back to renew the heavens and the earth. That our new imperishable bodies, though very different from the ones we currently inhabit, will nonetheless be bodies. Bodies with limbs, bodies that eat, bodies yet free from death and decay, bodies that live and move and have their being in a renewed physical creation. We don't have a spiritual, ethereal, mystical, can't-grab kind of hope, Christ City. We have a physical hope. A physical hope. And if that all sounds strange and new to you, let me invite you to stick with us. Because over the next few weeks, Paul's going to unpack a, a theology of the body for us. It's going to be wonderful. But here Paul's saying, what happens if we say no to that? What happens if we as many self-professing Christians still do, say no to the bodily resurrection of the dead. Now, that might sound crazy to you. You might think to yourself, how can a Christian say no to this? Well, let me just tell you this. Uh, Barna Group, they do like all these polls and research. Uh, they recently did a study um, called The Open Generation, where they looked at teenagers and asked them questions about Jesus, the Bible, and, and justice. And in that study, it will be on the screen behind me, listen to this. Why don't you just think about these stats? In that study, 50% of global teenage Christians believe the statement, Jesus was raised from the dead. In Canada, 42% of teenage Christians believe the statement, Jesus was raised from the dead. Now just, just think about that for a second. Again, 42% of teenage Christians. Now you might say, because I thought this too, well, Jake, it's probably just nominal Christians, right? Cultural Christians, people who grew up in like a like the Roman Catholic Church or a liberal mainline church. Here's the most shocking bit: there is no differentiation between evangelicals and Roman Catholics and those in the liberal mainline church. This is not true of some other church, some, some other people. This is true of, of our church, of, of people we rub shoulders with. And I just say all this just to press pause for us and have us consider that, that people in your life who say that they know and love Jesus might mean something very different than what you mean. Might believe something very different than what historically Christians have always believed. In fact, 42%, meaning what? 58% of other global, uh, sorry, in Canada teenage Christians don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. 
This is not like a, oh, out there problem. This is an in here problem. And Paul says, if there is no, this is verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. See, here's the link he makes. The two, our resurrection and Jesus' resurrection, are inseparable. And so the first domino to fall, if you deny the bodily resurrection of the dead, which means you deny the bodily resurrection of Christ, is this. It'll be on the screen. Domino number one, our gospel proclamation and faith, all you do in Christ, is empty and meaningless. Paul writes, verse 14, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Return with me to to the altruistic monk. He's been sitting over here very quietly and patiently because it's the right thing to do. Return with me. Let's consider him again for a moment. Consider for a moment all the limitations and disciplines and restrictions the monk has undergone in his life, right? Presumably, he has said no to a wife and a family. He said no. Instead of the comforts of a normal home, right? He has endured a single room with a hard mattress and bare walls. Instead of lavish meals, fine wine, delicious food, he has eaten simply water, bread, vegetables, rarely meat. Committed to the monastery, there is much of the world he has not seen. He has never experienced the wonder of other cultures, smelt the strange aromas of a foreign place. Why does the monk do this in his own words? Holiness, silence, sacrifice are beautiful in themselves. This, we must see, friends, is sub-Christian. Sub-Christian. It's not what motivated Paul. If you remember last week, Daniel showed us that it was God's grace, past, present, and future grace that motivated Paul to outwork all the other apostles, to hustle more than any of them combined. Grace received, grace enjoyed, and grace hoped for is what compelled Paul to endure all the suffering that he endured, all the evil he went through. And stopping Paul in view of this would have been very, very simple. How do you stop Paul? It's really easy. Produce the body of Jesus. Show him the body of Jesus. Show him that Jesus is dead. And therefore, not coming back to resurrect the dead. And that's it. Game over. See, Paul sees holiness, sacrifice, silence as a means to an end. Not the end in itself. In the words of one New Testament scholar, Craig Blomberg, Paul did not experience enough natural enjoyment or self-realization in his life of constant turmoil and persecution to see any point in continuing the struggle if it were based on a myth. Why did Paul do what he did? Not because he thought it was a cleverly devised myth. And my concern today is that we think like the monk is that altruism has infiltrated our Christianity. That we do the work of Jesus, removed from the hope of Jesus. 
Maybe not explicitly, but implicitly, we shift into an altruistic mindset. I want us to stop. Consider this morning, what motivates you in your mission? Remember, the reason we're here, the reason we're in this building, the reason we gather is to make missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. We're looking beyond ourselves. What motivates you in your mission? It's just good. Just a good thing to do. Right? Just respectable thing to do in the community. That's garbage. It's not why I'm here. What motivates you in your evangelism? Your willingness to endure suffering for the sake of Christ. Are you being good for good's sake? For the sake of how others perceive you? For your standing in society? Or are you caught up in God's grace, his past, his present, and his future to come grace? The theologian Michael Reeves, he writes this. He says, happy mission presupposes happy Christians. Here's what he means. There's a kind of mission, I know this, I think you know this. There's a kind of mission that can be carried out by miserable Christians. Miserable Christians. And though it may be doctrinally correct, carefully organized, it will only reflect the emptiness in their own hearts. Christians who don't enjoy God can't and won't wholeheartedly commend him to others. Oh, Christ City. If we fear that God's love for us is reluctant or that his approval rests on our performance, we won't feel any affection for him. Our service will be grudging and the world will likely see through us. If there is no resurrection, you have received no grace and you have nothing to talk about. Make small talk, make empty talk. That's all you have. It gets worse. Domino number two. Paul's a liar. Paul continues, verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true, as you say, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, again, the inextricable link, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. We saw it a couple weeks ago, a central part to Paul's confession that he has received, 15 verse 3, that Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. God, just as he can raise you and me, raised Christ. That's what Paul, that's what the apostles taught and believed. And now having shown this connection between our resurrection and Christ's bodily resurrection, he says to deny the bodily resurrection is to come to only one conclusion, one, one end. Paul's a liar. Paul's a liar. He and his apostle buddies, the whole lot of them, are misrepresenting God. And let's keep on going. If Paul and the apostles are misrepresenting God, then what good is their testimony elsewhere? In fact, what good then is the New Testament? Of course, other than a book for you to cherry-pick quotes to put on your Instagram that already align with your preferred lifestyle, right? Friends, the Bible is a book. I just want us to see this. The Bible is a book that must be ingested in its entirety, must be eaten in its whole, 
or not at all. You can't say, hey, where's the New Testament start? This is the part I really like right here. This, This is the good part. Or like, hey, maybe there's a story about David killing Goliath and you know, like that kind of applies to my work situation, so I'm just going to ingest this part right here. Right? Do you know what I'm saying? It's a book that has to be eaten, ingested in its entirety, or not at all. With trends cropping up, like ex-evangelical and the growing liberalism throughout the North American church, Paul's logic is timely for us. We want God's love, but we don't want his wrath. We want God's goodness towards me, but not towards my enemy. And as the disagreeable threads are pulled out, we soon find the whole thing unravels, and all we're left with is a ball of yarn. Is Paul a liar? If he is, disregard it all. That's logical. But that's not the worst bit. The third domino... If Christ is dead, he says, third thing, we, we, and other Christians who have died are still in our sin. Look at verse 17 with me. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. The question here is, how do we know our sins are paid for? How do you know that your sins have been paid for? How can you be sure? How do you know that in exchange for your sinfulness, you have received Christ's righteousness, his holiness, his obedience? And how do you know that Christ, as our representative head, has accomplished on our behalf and for his people what we could not do on our own, the Bible says it's because he's alive. That's the answer the scriptures give us. If Christ is not alive, then you don't know. Then you don't have any assurance. Our hope over sin and death and shame is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and on the third day was raised in accordance with the scriptures. That's our hope. It's not our hope only, but the hope also of all those who have died in Christ. Died looking forward to Christ's return. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, both they and we will perish in our sins. That is, we will die as guilty people. Guilty people. Not justified, guilty before a holy and righteous God. In in fact, the word here for for perish, do you see it? The word here for for perish is not like you think of a plant kind of slowly dying and and withering away, like, oh, it just sort of perished. No, no, the word here, as it's used in the rest of the New Testament, is the word for active judgment. We die under active judgment, active condemnation. God judges us. If Christ has not raised from the, been raised from the dead, then we have no hope. But more than that, we are dead in our sins. That's what Paul is saying. Which can lead us to only one place. The final and inevitable domino that must fall is this. Domino number four. Welcome to Christ City. We are pitiful. 
That's what he's saying. I'd like to tell you he's saying something nicer or like more politically correct, but he's not. He's saying, let's just be logical for a second. Let's be intellectually honest for a second. Where this ends, if you deny the bodily resurrection from the dead, uh, the bodily resurrection of Christ, is that we're pitiful. We're pitiful. Here's the conclusion he comes to, verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The most pitiful, actually, he says. See, spirituality, if we trace it throughout the generations, has changed dramatically in recent years. It used to be that spirituality helped you see beyond this world, right? When things were less easy for us, when you're suffering, you know, in the middle of a, the Black Plague, for instance, spirituality helped you see beyond this world. But now, spirituality is intended to serve you in this world, in, in, in this day and age. This has changed. This, this is new in our era. I read a story this past week of a tech company. And it's uh, a tech company that is very um, with it. Uh, they're, they're doing all the right things. And on Friday, every Friday at this tech company, they have this thing called the well-being quotient test. It's, it's really simple. You just score yourself from 1 to 10 on different areas of your life. So like your love life, your, your relationships, your, your financial life. You give yourself a score out of 10, including your spiritual life. You, you rank your spiritual life from 1 to, to 10. And, and one of the, um, the um, employees in this story, who the author calls Vijay, Vijay went on a weekend retreat. It changed his life. And so much so, he now says, spirituality is one of the areas where I rate myself a 10 every week. Vijay is 10 out of 10 spirituality every week. It is so important we see what's happening here. So important. Vijay has understood spirituality only and entirely as a present phenomenon. Spirituality helps him feel better. Further, his company views spirituality as just one area to be improved upon if he is to be more productive and therefore if uh, the profits are to increase. If BJ is going to make them more money, spirituality helps them be more profitable. We live, Christ City, in a culture, and it's in the church, where we are so obsessed with the here and now benefits of our spiritual beliefs, whether they be therapeutic or economic, that we have crowded out, we have no room of any thought of the life to come. Be careful. Watch for it. Let me be clear. Paul wants us to know that now in Jesus, the resurrection has begun. You are right now a new creation. You have been changed by the Spirit of God living in you to live a different kind of life. But that different kind of life is cross-shaped, which means a self-actualization. You know, your best life now that you're aiming towards is quite different than the roadmap provided to us by Scripture. Christian, if you cannot see beyond the present, indeed have not thought of the coming age, then you will be quick to mistake what works and what produces breakthroughs for the truth. See, you can go to hell with a 10 out of 10 spirituality score. I just wanted to sit with that for a second. Here's once more Paul's logic. If Christ is dead, so are you and everyone you've ever loved. 
You've wasted your life on something truly empty, and in the end, you and I are pitiful. I'm probably the most pitiful. I get paid to do this. I want us to feel what Paul is saying. The darkness of verse 12 to 19 has to be grappled with if we're going to enjoy the glory that is verse 20. See, feel this with me. Paul is saying this. He's not saying your life would be worse off if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He's saying it would be meaningless. He's not saying your good deeds would be less effective if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He's saying you can't even call them good. He, he's not saying... He's not saying you can just take a little bit and it's okay. You know, it's like me stepping onto a, a basketball court announcing that I'm now a Hall of Fame basketball player and expecting that to be true just because I said it. No, he's saying think logically. If Christ is dead, so are you. So at the bottom of this dark cavern that I've led us towards, I want us to ask a different question. What if Christ is alive? What if Christ is not dead? What if the tomb is empty? What if Christ is alive? It would be tempting to continue with the domino metaphor and just say that Jesus' resurrection just undoes the bad stuff, right? Just sort of fixes all the bad that's happened. But that's not the testimony of the scripture. No, Jesus will say that my resurrection is the inbreaking of something new into the world. I'm not only undoing all the evil that's ever been done, I'm starting a new thing, the likes of which you've never seen before. I am the pioneer, as you'll say later, the first fruits of a new thing that's happening in the cosmos. Jesus is initiating something brand new. He is the first fruits of that. This is the logic of the gospel. It says Christ has been raised. More to the point, he is, verse 20, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. See, in the agricultural world of the New Testament, the, the first fruit offering was something you brought to God as a celebration. It was a celebration, right? And the celebration was for, for two reasons. One, the first fruit offerings was a guarantee that more was coming. Hey, this is just a start. More's coming, right? Could celebrate that, that more's coming. It was as if to say, like, we're just getting started. But, but second, the fruit itself would tell you what the crop was going to be like. It would image for you, picture for you, what the rest of the harvest would look like. See, Jesus as the first fruit for all those who have died does the exact same thing. He says this, receive this Christ city. He says, brothers and sisters, we're just getting started. We're just getting started. We're just getting started. And my resurrection is the guarantee of the coming harvest. My resurrection is the first inbreaking. I am the pioneer by which all other future resurrections have their basis. He says, I'm not only the promise of your resurrection, I'm the prototype of your resurrection. Look at me. If you want to know what kind of body you'll have, look at me. I'm the first fruit. The logic continues, which means... Not only is your preaching and faith not empty and meaningless, it is rock solid. It is sure. No one can take it. No one can touch it. Nothing can move it. It is sure. 
Moreover, the logic continues, that the Spirit who raised Christ from the dead now lives in you, giving life to your mortal body. The Spirit birthing in us the resurrection life of Jesus is now giving us the power through the gospel to do meaningful works, to do meaningful things, to be a part of what will last forever. So, so let me interject here, because some of you are not followers of Jesus, and we're so glad that you're here. We're so glad that you're here. But if you're not a Christian, this all sounds probably very strange to you. I want to just interject. Let's agree that at this time in history, the ethical standard has never been so high. It's the highest ethical standard we've ever lived in, period. Every day we are met with new rules for being on the right side of history. And no wonder we are so anxious. No wonder we are so tired. The bar has never been higher. And what's more, we are discovering that we have no power in and of ourselves to meet this standard. That's what our generation is discovering. That's what those teenagers are discovering. You can picture, with, uh, you can picture it like this. Think about a flower bed. Those flowers in the flower bed grow and flourish because they are rooted in the soil which provides all their nourishment. Right? All their nourishment they need comes from the soil, comes from the ground they are rooted in. What happens when you cut those flowers and give them to someone in a bouquet? At first, nothing. They're lovely. They're flowers. The flowers continue to look beautiful, but over time, detached from the soil, detached from their nutrients, they begin to fade and will eventually die. See, when it comes to doing good in our generation, it is like cut flowers. Listen, our societal virtues of love, justice, peace, tolerance, patience, you name it, whether you believe it or not, all came from Christian soil. All came from the revolution that was Jesus Christ's resurrection. And if you want resources on this, I'd be happy to give them to you. But we've rejected the resurrection of Jesus. We've said there is no resurrection of the dead. And in doing so, we have cut the flowers from the soil. And so right now they look fine, but they're dying. And we're frantically searching in neuroscience, in evolutionary biology, and in every place we can think of to find some other ground to root them in, but we can't find it. We can't find it. It's not working. We have asked for the kingdom without the king. And it's not working. All we're left with is dead flowers. Friends, hear the gospel this morning. The gospel not only says Jesus met the standard that you could not reach, that you could not meet. The gospel also says that in Jesus, the spirit of God lives in you. And you now have power to live different, to live rooted and grounded in the true vine who is Christ. To live a different life. Only by abiding in the risen Christ can we live this radical, cruciform life that we've been spending the past two years looking at. Only by that. This Christ city is the logic of the gospel. This is the logic you're being invited to believe in and to live into. Jesus lives so I can do good today. Jesus lives so my sin died. Jesus lives so I can live forever. And let's end with an admission, a confession. It is not a logic, we all know, that will win you praise and acclamation. You will get no Nobel Prize 
or earthly rewards or praise for adhering to this logic. It's the kind Paul showed us earlier in this letter that uh, is seen as both foolish and powerless. It is a kind, ironically, that will elicit the world's pity, likely also their scorn and rejection. And strangely, in a world of authenticity, you will find that this is the one thing you can't be authentic about. But while the world will see a pitiful creature, we know the truth. Paul writes later to the same church, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Christ said, may we live in increasing measure, more logical lives. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess that we are people who live with an operating system that runs entirely counter to all that we've just heard. We live according to the logic of this world. And while our lips may profess your resurrection, our lives functionally deny it. Lord, help us to live in step with the logic of the gospel. Help us to go forth today with the confidence that because you live, Jesus, our work is meaningful. Our preaching is meaningful. Our, our faith is not in vain, but is in fact full of meaning. And we invite you now as we respond, Lord, to speak to us. To convict us of areas in our life where we have stepped out of line with your gospel. Now be gracious to us, Lord. We thank you that you are. In Christ's name, amen. Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca.